It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Drilled to center field and deep. Back on it is Eaton. To the track. To the wall. It's gone. Kevin Longoria with a two-run home run to straightaway center. And he gives the Rays a 6-4 lead here in the ninth. Coming up, we'll recap the action from this past week, take a look around Major League Baseball, and sit down for in-depth interviews with the biggest names in the game. The 2-2 now. Check swing on the slider. Strike three. Chris Archer jumps off the mound and bounces his way to the dugout. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our show. Today in our program, we'll look at the week gone by with Dave Andy and Brian Anderson. We'll also take a close look at tomorrow's draft with Rob Metzler, Director of Scouting. We'll visit with Principal Owner Stuart Sternberg, plus look back at last year's draft with 2016 first-round selection Josh Lowe, plus much more. We continue on this weekend race baseball, and a big focus of our program today is the draft because it is tomorrow. And joining us, Director of Scouting, Rob Metzler. Rob, thanks very much for joining us. 32 hours away. What's the excitement level for your group right now? The excitement level's incredibly high. We've been working on this group of prospects for years, and specifically they've been in our crosshairs for the past full year. You know, the, the, the calendar year in scouting starts the day one draft ends. So we've been working on this group for a long time, and we're prepared to uh, – you know, we're excited to see what happens. At this point, 32 hours out, is there consensus now among the group as to, let's say, who the top four on the board are because you are picking so high? And how difficult is it this year, let's say, compared to other years? Consensus probably isn't the right word. You know, I, I think we've worked through different opinions and different viewpoints as a group to try and narrow things down and, and prepare for, for different scenarios. But consensus you know I wouldn't say that's the word not because a reflection of this year but really any year and I think that's a good thing to have different viewpoints and you know see see players from different scouting lenses and see players from different lenses as a whole whether it's an analytical lens just purely a front office lens or from purely a scouting lens I think those are all great but they are not geared towards consensus that said is let's say you know some years the top of the draft is pretty clear um, whether it's a Harper or, or a Strasburg or a Price when the Rays pick there. Is the top of the draft as clear this year? It seems there's much murkier in terms of the top five, six guys as to who's going to go where. It's hard for me to say because we haven't, as a group, we haven't been in this position since 2008. You know, the, the highest we've picked has been 13th, so then we have this great opportunity at number four. So what the people in those shoes were thinking the past three, four, five years might be different than what we how we viewed it from the 13th pick or from the 20th pick or from the 25th pick or the 30th pick. So the, it's hard for me to answer that for you. But I, I would say that... Uh, we think it's a good group. Is, is it, you know, to answer your question before again, is it is it completely clear to us? No, but nor do I think it should be. I think it's really hard to project out these players' futures, and we do everything we can to, to shift, the, uh, shift the odds in our favor as much as we can. How important is this pick? Because you mentioned it's so rare in the last nine years you haven't picked this high. 
Neil, you're just throwing more pressure on me. Jeez, I was I was going to sleep great tonight, but now I'm nervous. There's a lot of pressure. Uh, you know, it's it's a big deal for our organization. You know, we've we've committed. You know, obviously it's going to be a big financial commitment. Uh, we've committed a lot of resources to to preparing for it. So it's it's a uh, it's it's a big deal. But you lean on. You know, we have a great team in place to to prepare us. We have what we think is a really strong process, and you. You trust all that peop- those people in that process to yield really good results. What, what is the strength of this year's draft to you? I, I think it's a pretty balanced draft. So to, to say any one strength, you know, people have asked, I think that, you know, it's a balanced draft up top. We see strengths in all, if you look at it in quadrants of high school and college, pitching position players, we see strengths in all of those areas. You know, I, I think if you looked out over the top 50 picks, maybe maybe it's, you know, I don't think it would be out of line to say it's strong in college pitching, uh, but you know, I, th- I think at the at the very top, I think it's balanced and pretty even. And the depth overall of the draft, I mean, as you get beyond fifty, because you're going to you know pick forty rounds, where, where's the the depth of the class? I would, I would say the same. You know, I would say the same. You know, beyond fifty, I, I think I think there's a lot of good college pitching out there, but I'm. Who knows what what our you know what our board will yield compared to what the 29 other clubs leave available for us? So that's not to predict in any way that we will load up on a bunch of college pitching throughout our 41 picks. You know who, who really knows what you know what the what the process is going to yield? But I, I think there is some depth there. I, I remember when Matt Bush was you know he evolved into a pitcher, but he was taking us a shortstop. Um, but it's rare to me to see two guys, let's say, who people say are top five, who are considered potential at either pitchers or position players. Is that rare to you? Maybe from a, our lens, we don't see it very often. For sure, it's a rare year, you know, for, to have two players, you know, in, you know, as considered elite talents who are, who are so accomplished, you know, both ways, you know, and, and even to, you know, there's more even throughout the, you know, there's more two-way players throughout the draft this year than we've seen in some time. So it is unique in that way. Why, why do you think that is? And, and do you think either yourselves or another team is going to give someone a chance to do both or is that too hard to do we've had plenty of internal discussions and we'll probably keep those discussions internal to see how to see how things play out over the next what do you say 32 hours mm-hmm. yeah i'm on the clock uh so we'll probably see how those things play out but i do think that you know to to touch on it i think it would be an immense challenge to to both develop as a pitcher and a position player to answer the question you know you know to answer the question whether any of the talents in this year's draft are capable we'll you know we'll we'll see every team's take you know we'll see which teams get the opportunity to, to uh to explore that and we'll we'll find out their take in the in, in the near future does that make it harder too because you're not only deciding okay how much do you like the player but how much do you like them at one you know because you have to decide is what where's his ceiling where's his floor i think anytime there's a unique player it, it makes it more challenging because there's you know how we tend to evaluate as to whether it's purely as a scout or whether it's in the front office or from an analytical lens the we tend to look at similarities from the past and and you know how those situations played out and you know hopefully there's lots of similar similar type players in the past and so lots of scenarios to see how it would play out and you can project things from there so when you have somebody very unique it makes that much more challenging but it's not you know doesn't mean that there's more upside or less upside, more challenge. It just means that it's very unique. And not only do you have four, but you do have 31 and 40. So you've got three within the top 40. The way baseball is set up, you have more resources allotted this year than in past years for the players. But do you put more resources into how you went after the draft this year? Is it any different than past years for your group? 
we we have a strong team so we we've been able to you know in the past you know over the evolving over the past you know I, i've been with the department for 10 years now and pretty steadily we've poured more and more resources into the department in terms of staffing in terms of you know staffing out in the field staffing in the office we have we feel comfortable that we have all the tools we need at our disposal to, so it's you know specifically to 2017 I think there's been a lot, you know, probably more time allocated from from the overall front office, but to the department as a whole, you know, it's been a steady decline or steady incline to to this spot. And when you look at the draft overall, when you determine, okay, you look back at your processes, how do you determine what success is and what would be a successful draft in this year to you and your group if you let's say you were to look five years from now? Well, if we have, you know, probably 10 all-star level players, you know, out of, out of our 41 picks, that would probably be, no, I'm being sarcastic, Neil. Uh, you know, it's, we, we look at drafts, you know, our draft results of who we actually selected and how those are playing out. We look at our draft board as a whole to see how that draft board is playing out because sometimes, you know, there are, you know, I'd like to have a very good process and very good results, but sometimes you can have a great process and the board just falls in a way that, you know, hey, we were in really good position on player A, B, and C, but... None of them were available when when we selected, and then we, you know, our board was really a strong board, but just the way the draft played out, we were quote unquote unlucky. You know, I, I don't think that, but I think over the course of time, over the course of lots of drafts, if you have a good board and if you prepared very well and you have good scouting evaluations, that you're going to be more, you're going to be lucky more often than you're unlucky. Well, hopefully, luck is on your side in the next day, and good luck on uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday in in those picks. Thanks, Neil. Appreciate it. That's Rob Metzler again joining us on This Week in Race Baseball. We continue right after this on the Race Baseball Network. We continue on This Week in Race Baseball and joining us now, last year's first round pick, Josh Lowe. Josh, thanks very much for a few minutes. Does it really feel like a year for you that it was you were drafted? Uh, yeah, first of all, thank you for having me on here. Um, but I would say that now it, it definitely feels like it's it's been a while uh, since I've been drafted. You know, going through my first, I'd say, uh, half season there uh, last year, spending time in the GCL in Princeton, and now being here my first full season in Bowling Green, it's definitely felt like a long time, but I've enjoyed it so far, and I'm excited to see what the future holds. What did you remember most, or what will you remember most going forward about draft day? Something that really stuck out to me the most was actually probably my workout that I had before the draft at uh Tropicana Field. Um, that was probably the turning point for me, I'd say, to where I, I kind of realized that the Rays were going to have a pretty good probability of taking me in the draft, and that's where things kind of started looking up for me. What have you learned in the last year, and what's been the, the most eye-opening part of your experience so far in professional baseball? I'd say just every day going out there and giving 100%, because you never know what's going to happen, whether uh, you could they hit a ball in the infield and beat it out for a hit or hit it on the, on the on the barrel and get out. But just going out there and giving 100% every day, no matter what, and playing uh, to your ability as hard as you can. Obviously, you played, you know, I'm sure in some very high-level high school tournaments and also travel ball. But how different is the baseball now, especially at the full season level? Because, I mean, you're a guy who would have been in your freshman year of college, and you're playing a lot of guys who – either would be in a senior year of college or maybe even graduated college at this point in time? You know, I think it's, it's a lot different in that aspect because everybody's doing it as 
best they can because everybody in, in the league wants to make it to the big leagues. Um, everybody's going to go out there and do whatever they can to get you out. But it's just it's just a grind, staying within yourself and realizing that you're here for a reason and that no one's better than you if you have that mentality. Not a, not a cocky mentality, but a humble kind of quiet, knowing that you are who you are and, and playing hard every single day. That's kind of how you have to go about it. How different is the baseball in terms of the, the level of competition you're seeing, let's say the type of pitcher and quality of stuff you're seeing on a regular basis? Yeah, it's, it's definitely not different from coming from the high school level. Uh, you know, seeing the guys that we're seeing consistently now, uh, you maybe run into one of those or once a month kind of guys in high school. Everybody, Everybody's throwing their best. You know, most guys related to playing college ball and seeing a lot of Friday night guys and seeing that on a daily basis. Everybody's got good off-speed, good fastball, and you just got to be ready to get up there and play the game. And even the jump from, let's say, Princeton or the Gulf Coast League to the to the Midwest League, I mean, how different is is it for you? And you're also playing a lot more baseball than you ever had. I mean, you mentioned the grind. I mean, here you are nearing the midway point of you know your first full season, and you've probably played more games than you ever have in a year, right? Right. Um, yeah, that that part, um, I'm I'm doing pretty well. I, I feel really good, and my body's in shape, and I'm I'm doing pretty good in that aspect. But uh, yeah, the, the the jump from Princeton to here is it's it's a lot different. But I'm adjusting pretty well. At the beginning of the year, there was kind of a slow start, but now things are starting to pick up, and I've had teammates and everybody really help me out and just stay consistent and stay on that that path and know that everything's going to work out. One of those teammates, and it's fairly unique. I'm curious how much you appreciate the fact that you have your brother on the team with you, and how much has he helped because he is a little bit older, having gone through the college ranks? Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, pretty cool to have him here with me because not everybody gets to play with their, their brother on the same team. Um, you know, you can you can rarely find a team in the minors or the majors where there's two brothers playing on a team, but he's always been there for me, and uh, I'm thankful for him. And he'll always push me, and I'll always push him, and it'll be a competitive, healthy relationship. Now, you have also not only adjusted to a new level as a younger player, but also to a new position. What is what has it been like moving to the outfield, and where do you think you've grown the most in that in that spot? Uh, yeah, I like I like center a lot. Um, it's been a pretty easy adjustment for me, working with uh, the outfield coordinators here, and they've all helped me kind of move into that spot pretty easy. It's not a not a whole lot, let's say. Com- going from maybe infield to a catch or something like that. You know, in the outfield, it's just kind of getting the ball, making sure you catch it. That's the most important thing. Um, and I've really started to adjust well, and there's some things that I can work on, but I think everybody knows that everybody can work on something to get better each day, and that's what I'm trying to do to become the best player of my ability. Josh, we appreciate a few minutes. We wish you continued success with the Rays organization and bigger and brighter things ahead. And that is last year's first-round pick of the Rays, Josh Lowe, as we look back on his first year in the Rays system. Of course, tomorrow is the draft, but getting back to the Rays today, we talk about the week gone by with Dave and Andy and also Brian Anderson of Fox Sports Sun. Gentlemen, good to see you guys this morning. How uh, how are you surviving after yesterday? Um, the, the only thing that I'm going to say is I'm looking very much forward to getting into my tumbler of coffee. <laughs> Plain black coffee. I don't want anything to dilute it. I'm looking forward it's to that. It's a giant tumbler. You are literally going to just climb right into <laughs> I it. I rolled it up here. Dave? I'm all good. Uh, you know, it's just another night. Uh, 
you know, like I said, I, you know, you heard all the stories about travel, and I heard a lot of other broadcasters that I worked with complaining about having to do this, this, and this. And like I always say, my coin phrase is, this beats working for a living. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I called two baseball games yesterday. Big deal. And uh, at the end of the day, yeah, we did a little extra talking, and we were here a little bit longer. But, uh, you know, we were just talking about it. Brian Anderson brought up Tom Jones's column in the uh, in the paper, and it's true. I mean, I, 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 we're not digging ditches. We're not, <laughs> you know. I had, I had somebody after I did a speech one time said, Dave, you have such a passion for your job that I, I think you could go and be a garbage man and you'd be the same way. And I said, I can guarantee you one thing. If I'm picking up garbage in Tampa Bay and it's 95 degrees out with 100% humidity, I will not be in a good mood when my work day is over. Well, I can let, guarantee you that. Let so, me ask BA. I mean, you were a pitcher, but is too much made out of two games out of one in the minor leagues? They're a regular occurrence. Yeah, no, I, of course too much is made out of it. It's right. two baseball games back-to-back. Right. And I'm going to tell you something else. Most every team on a yearly basis ends up getting a rain out and has to play a day-night doubleheader. Right. That, to me, is far worse. Absolutely. I would rather get to the ballpark, get ready, play a game, give me a 30-minute little siesta, and let's play another game. Yeah. Rather than play that first game and sit around for you know three, two or three hours and let the adrenaline come down and then try to crank it back up, let's just play two. I, I loved it. I know the fans love it. We mm-hmm. loved it growing up. And, uh, you know, one day a year to play a doubleheader back-to-back I don't think is too much to ask. I, I yeah. mean, it's, it, it's... If the pizza would have been on time in between games, <laughs> that would have been back. Yeah, listen, and the, fa- the fact that you can hear the announcement being made, like, in the top of the second, that it's now here, go That's enjoy right. yourself, yeah. when you know you, that yeah. we can't. Yeah, that was That's, a little annoying. That was annoying. the only downside, yeah. <laughs> Let's enjoy ourselves with some of the baseball stories this week. And I think the top was Jake Faria and the Major League debut he had. B.A., I'm sure you know, you've seen some impressive Major League debuts. What impressed you most about Jake? Well, first of all, just his mound demeanor, you know, his presence, the fact that you know, he comes up here, he's making his Major League debut, and if you listen to his quotes, that's what really stood out, is his quotes, he didn't hide and try to say this is another, he said this is my dream. I finally have fulfilled a dream that I have had since I was a little kid, and I'm getting a chance. He's putting the pressure on himself, you know, but with those kind he. He really set the stage for it to be a big moment for him. Now he's pitching for the Rays, a pitching-rich organization, in front of family, friends, fiance. He goes out there. The first hitter that he faces ends up scoring off of him, and then that's it. He shut him down, and he didn't shut him down fluky. I mean, after the game was over, I'm thinking up, upstairs, I'm saying, I, I wish I could see this guy in five days. Do you, you, know, remember, he's, do you remember your first day, though? I mean, do you, I do. You know, we were talking about some of the things, and he said, I tried to make it as normal as possible. I mean, he can that, say that. Do you believe it? Uh, you, yes, to the extent of your routine. But that's not normal. Mm-hmm. It's, now, if you get up, you eat at a certain time, you start to stretch at a certain time, all of those is keeping it as normal as possible. Sure. But you know in your mind there's nothing normal about it. So, yes, to an extent, I understand it. But other than that, it's it's the moment. And the, and the fact that what we saw from him stuff-wise, mechanically, we can get into that at a later time. But I loved everything I saw about him, and I thought it was it was great. It turned out how it did. There was one point that I kept thinking about during the game. Faria, stuff looks good, definitely may very well play up here. But I wonder what Blake Snell was thinking in AAA, watching a guy that he knows very well that Blake, frankly, has better stuff. Blake may have better stuff than anyone on the race staff right now, maybe with the exception of Archer, uh, and he's back at AAA. I wonder if that's an interesting lesson for a AAA guy that has been in the major leagues knowing my stuff might be better, maybe that's a, a good thing to spur him on. We'll see. Well, yeah, and, and it all comes down to can you command it. Right. The, the, one pitch. 
just fastball command. That's that's all it comes down to. Um, you know, that's what Faria had. I love the fact that he had pitches moving, you know, each direction, you know, with the, with the split change up, and he can elevate and, and the breaking ball down and away, and he had a real good feel out on the mound and can move things around. But there's no question that that, you know, sends a message, whether it's intended or not, the message is sent to Blake Snell. And, uh, you know, that, that should cause you to, to work a little bit harder to, to hone your craft to get up here to stay next time for good. And you mentioned, B.A., that you wanted to see him more after watching this debut. Well, unfortunately, based on what happened yesterday, Matt Andrees, it looks like we will see a lot more of Jake Faria. Surprised about Matt Andrees? I mean, they no rehab for him. He went out in one inning, and, and that was it with the groin injury again. Uh, yeah, surprised to, to, to the point. Well, you know, they said mild groin the first time. And, you know, I've hurt my groin before. It was nothing mild about it. So I'm, I'm fortunate, you know, Matt Andrees was not uh, in the boat that I was because there was no chance that I was going to be able to throw a bullpen and pitch, you know, within, uh, you know, one turn of the rotation. Uh, but that gives you pause. You know, when you hear about a groin, you're like, there's a lot of pushing and swinging and torque that goes on that that groin has to support. So hopefully that, that's the, you know, that's the correct diagnosis. And then he goes out and throws a bullpen nothing's you know nothing's amiss difference is is you know bullpen's one thing you know game speed is another game speed sitting down warming up you know throwing an inning sitting down doing the same you're asking a lot of your body and so that's the only thing that you wondered about and then of course after the first inning um, it happens again, so you you can you can bet that they're going to be super cautious well, with them going I forward. I think from now on, I think any pitcher is going to have to probably have a rehab start. Yes. I just think mm-hmm. that they're going to have to, you know, and you still may not be a big league speed when you are at uh, A ball or whatever the case may be, but you're going to be at game speed. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Rays now say from now on, boys, you got to make one rehab start before you. Well, this happened with Odorizzi also when he got hit by the line drive in the hamstring and then said it was fine. And then the next game he goes out in Boston and the identical thing that happened yesterday. So there is something to be said about game intensity, no question. No doubt. And, and the other big story this week is the story. That's Kevin Kiermeyer getting hurt. And, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, it, to me when I saw it, I'm like, uh, I wish he could have avoided that slide and not gone feet first. I mean, there's nothing you can do about it now. You just have to survive and move forward. I think the, the, the main part that they will miss him defensively, and B.A., you could speak to this. All right, Smith is going to be able to go get the baseball out there. The Razor's better covered at the corners even now than they were a year ago, but his arm yeah. and the threat of the arm. Teams did not take liberties anymore. They did not automatically score from second on base hits to center field. In fact, more times they didn't even try it anymore. Now they'll try it. Yeah, they, they will. That, that'll be the, uh, the, the weakness. I shouldn't even say weakness, but that'll be the area that they try to exploit you know, in the Rays' defense. But I do think, you know, last year, obviously, we saw what the, the Rays' record was when he did not play and when he missed all of that time. I think they're better equipped this year to, mm-hmm. to handle that. You know, you think about Malik Smith, and, and you know, he's going to get the majority of the time out there, you would believe, just because more right-handed starting pitchers. So he's going to be out there quite a bit. He's going to be able to cover the ground. The arm may not be the same, but, you know, he, he's still going to be able to go make catches and, and, and cover a lot of that stuff out there. And then offensively, you know, he brings a pretty interesting dynamic too, and we saw that, you know, in his first game back. You know, what he was able to do that game, you would, I mean, take – nine out of nine with a leadoff guy just think about the skill set he showed in that one game first at bat he works a long at bat takes a walk he ends up stealing three bases on the night he gets a base hit where he takes a pitch and shoots it the other way and then something soft coming in towards him he's able to turn for power what more do you want from a guy 
I mean, what more do you want out of a, out of an offensive leadoff hitter with speed seen, than that? He's a lot of pitches, too. He's yep. seen a lot of pitches in that leadoff spot. Uh, you know, I, I think the other thing, too, I mean, yes, it was Kevin Kiermaier going down last year, but it was also like the perfect storm because then what? A couple of days later, Geyer went down. A few days later, Souza went down. I mean, we were losing guys mm-hmm. left and right over the next couple of weeks after Kevin went down. So it was not only Kevin's injury, but it was the, the, the all the injuries kind of coming together at the same time. But I think we are better equipped. And, uh, you know, last year we had hoped that Desmond Jennings would take advantage of it. Obviously, he did not. Malik Smith, though, right now I think is ready to take advantage of it and could be kind of fun to watch. But as long as he doesn't think he has to be Kevin Kiermaier, and I don't think he thinks he has to be Kevin Kiermaier, he just wants to be Malik Smith. Well, how about you, Brian, from a a pitching standpoint, the endless threat of what Malik Smith might do? There's always the threat of a bunt, regardless of the count, regardless of the situation. Whether he steals or not, he might be stealing. He takes these gigantic leads. I mean, the pitcher's got a lot to think about when Malik Smith is doing his thing. He puts a lot of pressure on a defense. There's no doubt about it. When he gets on first base, he absolutely is going to divide your mind as a pitcher and force you to have to deal with him. At the plate, you know, not only do you have to worry about the bunt and the different things that he can do as far as a hitter, but look how he puts pressure on just the other guys in, in the defense. The, the fact that, you know, I love when guys like Malik Smith with that skill set, what they would do is the third baseman's already kind of playing in for the fear of the bunt. And they'll turn around and, and square around on pitch number one and then take it and that forces the third baseman even further because now he's like okay he may really do this and then all they're doing that especially when they're facing a pitcher that they know is going to pitch him away they're only doing that to draw the third baseman up as as far as they can and then when they get that pitch away they just slap it right by him so you can use the threat of the bunt to set up yourself for a swing too you know when you're really advanced and so you just put a lot of pressure on a defense and they also know that once the ball is put in play you have to be flawless or he's going to beat it out a ground ball there can be no bobbles you add that element of pressure and you will create some errors and you'll create some opportunities team hasn't had that since carl crawford and that said i mean I think as good as Corey Dickerson has been in the leadoff spot, when Malik Smith is on base in front of him, isn't that going to help him more to see more fastballs because guys are afraid of the possibility of the stolen base? B.A. has a pitcher. Wouldn't you think that way he's going to see some more fastballs? Yeah, well, they better be well located. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> they better be well located. Uh, you're right, but you know, I, you know, you're reading the Rays notes, and it t- talks about the home runs, and a lot of them from Corey Dickerson, some from Steven Souza, out of the leadoff spot. The, the most home runs that the Rays have hit out of one spot in the order has been the leadoff spot. Well, then let's think of the efficiency of that. You know, the, it's yeah. a leadoff spot. Mm-hmm. Either those home runs are coming a little further down, yeah. then maybe they're not the solo shots. They're the two or the three run homers, and you know the efficiency goes way up. So Malik Smith in front of Corey Dickerson, maybe those solo shots become two run shots. I'm wondering too. I mean, I, I've just been kind of thinking out loud as we. We're, we're, we're talking here about maybe do you think about maybe swapping Lomo and Corey Dickerson? I mean, Lomo, yes, leads the team in RBIs, but if you look at his runners and scoring position numbers right now, they're horrific. I mean, they need to be a heck of a lot mm-hmm. better. And, you know, maybe if you put Dickerson down in the cleanup spot protecting Evan, a guy that can hit the ball out of the ballpark, guy who hits, hits for average, I mean, I don't know, you mess with a good thing because Dickerson is going so well, I don't know. But, you know, the, the thing that makes me a little nervous about Corey, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, is that he just doesn't walk, though, B. I mean, and, and I think what we're starting to see now is I think at least the Oakland A's have made a little bit of an adjustment saying, well, we're not going to throw this guy a strike. And I know it's kind of Vladimir Guerrero-like where, you know, he could still hit baseballs three, four, five inches off of the plate. And even yesterday or the last couple of days going after pitches that are near the dirt. But um, I, I just right now I'm seeing a guy that is a little swing happy 
And I, I think the, ex, the the A's right now have kind of exploited that a little bit by not throwing him any strikes, and he's still swinging at him. You know, you're 100% correct on that. Listen, Corey Dickerson has gotten off to such a tremendous start this season that teams are taking notice, and they're figuring out where are the holes, how can we exploit them. And that's going to get around the league. And what everybody does know, if you just all you got to do is look at the numbers, is that he has this highest swing percentage in Major League Baseball on pitches out of the strike zone. Enough said. Mm-hmm. So try to get him to chase. You know, we saw him swinging the ball. You know, in the dirt yesterday. I know he doubled on one <laughs> yep. on the road trip. Well, I don't think you want to hang your hat on that. Yeah, bounced up around knee high. That was a good <laughs> to yeah, no, but you're right. That's what teams are going to do, and that's what does scare you about. You know, I've thought the same thing. Well, what if you moved him even further down in the order and? what kind of damage he could do. But at the same time, does that mess with the dynamic of the lineup, the way it's constituted right now? I don't know. Kevin Cash has a better feel on that uh, than I do, you know, uh, up here. So he knows better than most. I mean, you let your mind wander and think about all the possibilities. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, those guys down there, you got to trust what they put out there in the lineup because they know the situation better than we do. How did you pitch Vlad Guerrero? Oh, not very well. I, I gave up a home <laughs> run to him. I think he's hit a home run off me down both <laughs> lines off the foul pole i mean really literally i mean you could throw him up and in at the neck and he'd take you and keep it fair and then you throw him you know like you were saying dave six eight inches off the plate he wouldn't just get to it but he would get to it and drive it he was one of the hardest guys to face because there was it was tough to come up with a game plan um you know and then people say well just throw it down the middle yeah no that doesn't work either (laughs) you know i don't know man my stuff didn't play very well with him (laughs) Great stuff, guys. Have a safe trip uh, to Toronto, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right, Neil, thanks. That's Dave B.A. and Andy, and let's pause for station identification on the Rays Baseball Network. This is Tampa Bay Sports Radio. This one's on its way, and gone! 620 WDAE St. Petersburg and 95.3 FM, home of the Rays. Coming up on this week in race baseball, more draft news plus principal owner Stuart Sternberg right after this on the Race Baseball Network. Welcome back to this week in race baseball. Time to take a look back a little bit at yesterday. Of course, the race played a scheduled doubleheader against the A's, and principal owner Stuart Sternberg was behind it, and I asked why it was so important to him. It was very important. We heard the opportunity was there, and we were able to uh, give the players an extra day off. But but it's something that for a number of years I've been asking, why can't we do another doubleheader? And uh, I didn't realize that they had been that rare uh, in Major League Baseball. Um, you know, there have been two admission doubleheaders. Um, they, you know, there have been a lot of them that get, uh, that get squeezed in. But just to have a, you know, one admission doubleheader in a classic fashion on a weekend, um, I thought would be would be really kind of cool. And as far as, uh, you know, for me as a kid, there was nothing better than circling those, you know, those doubleheader days and trying to get out to a ballpark, you know, in, in June, July, or August on a, on a Saturday or Sunday and, um, and try to, you know, catch both games. It was just, it was magical. And I would assume from your end as an owner, it's, it's a fan-friendly idea? Well, it's certainly costly, right, because, uh, you know, there's one less admission. There are costs involved with it, there are revenues uh that are going to cost us but you know in the scheme of things um i think that you know it's really special and and i got into this and and i always tell every you know everybody that works with us and works for us here uh we try to do special things and create some special moments and these are one of the things in baseball we could do that in a a strange way is kind of unique but yet was extraordinarily commonplace you know up until probably through the 80s do you think it'll come back i mean in some way maybe each team having one of these uh 
I doubt that because there's a, there is a, there is a pretty good hit to the to the bottom line for teams. Um, you know, it, it does affect it would affect the team, the high revenue team, obviously a lot more. You know, teams that are selling mm-hmm. selling out their games, it's just you know you're taking away a lot. Um, but by the same token, you know, as we're trying to do things for the good of the game and the good of our brand and the good of our fans, uh, you know, in, in some order. Uh, I think it's it's kind of cool, and if people could look, if we were able to do this every you know couple of years, and you know it became sort of a, a people look forward to it, and they were able to look on the schedule and, and maybe when is the doubleheader and make plans well in advance for it and plan around it. Uh, you know, nobody says you know they, there were the types like me who would get out there for batting practice <laughs> before the first game. Uh, you know, if it was a one o'clock game, you get there at eleven and and basically try to stay as long as you can. Uh, you know, for the second game. Uh, but then there were others who, which, which and I, I was guilty of this as well, was, you know, you, you showed up in the fourth inning of the first game and stayed through the second or, uh, you know, something like that. It was, it was like sort of double features at the movie theaters. That's one of the things probably before your time as well, Neil. Since you talk about memories, tell me a doubleheader that is memorable to you as a kid. I had, uh, <laughs> I, I remember seeing the, uh, the Dodgers play the Mets at Shea Stadium, I'm going to say in the early 70s, and... Somehow, through my sister, my sister had gotten me two tickets right behind home plate uh, early, you know, before the season started. She had asked me every year she would, uh, for a firm she worked on Wall Street, would, um, you know, she'd be able to get me tickets for a game, two tickets. And I was old enough at that point to be able to take the train myself. I was probably, I'm going to say, uh, probably 13 or 14. And, um, and she, you know, I circled this down. I asked for, "Ooh, can I get this doubleheader game?" It was a Dodger doubleheader, and they had been in Brooklyn, the Dodgers. So, um, and they gave me these two tickets, and it would, they were even better than the ones that they usually had given us. And they were two, and I saw them. These little paper tickets, right behind home plate. And I, I got there when the gates opened, and I stayed till they closed. It was a magical day. To look further forward, the draft is coming up. How important is this draft with the Rays picking as high as they are? And how important is the draft in general for this organization? The draft is uh, incredibly important, and I would say, uh, admittedly, we haven't been, uh, we've been well below what I would like to think is what we need to do in the draft, Um, you know, the last, uh, say, seven years or six, seven years. We found some real gems, uh, you know, without getting to all the specifics. I mean, so Faria started a game and, you know, did a great job. You know, we've had Blake Snell, you know, sort of later round uh, pitchers, you know, things like that. We're finally starting to see some, you know, benefits of having Tim Beckham, um, you know, but he was, a, you know, the top draft pick at all. Uh, but we, we've had to do better. We should have done better. Uh, we need to do better. And we keep, you know, uh, trying to improve our process. And not only are we picking near the top, which is something we, have, we haven't done in, since 2008. Uh, we're, we also have, you know, picks right at the end of the, for, we have a 31st, I think 40-some-odd, so we, you know, of those three, I think we should be able to add to our farm system, which is right now in great shape. We've got guys in, you know, all over the system who are going to, uh, you know, be impactful players for us. That is Rays principal owner Stuart Sternberg on the doubleheader yesterday and the draft. Now representing the Rays in tomorrow's draft over at MLB Network will be former Rays player Fernando Perez. Fernando, thanks for joining us. I'm excited to be there. I'm very excited. Hello, Rays fans, <laughs> friends. I've missed you all. What did it mean to get that, that uh, call that you were going to be involved in, and uh, how are you involved in the game otherwise right now? Um, I'm just lucky sometimes. <laughs> uh, you know, Dave 
Howler had me on his mind or whoever else made that decision, which I was very thrilled about. I managed to see the list, some amazing names, some Hall of Famers, I think. Mm-hmm. I feel like George Brett's going to be over there. Definitely going to accost him and hang out with him for a little bit. Uh, some other cool people on the list. Um, I've done a lot of things since playing. Um, I, I worked as an ambassador for Major League Baseball abroad. Uh, so that was basically these missions where I went to Germany as an as what they call an envoy ambassador for baseball. So Germany, believe it or not, has several different leagues, uh, several different levels of professional baseball. Their Bundesliga is the top level, mm. and I would say that that baseball is comparable to like maybe high A to double A ball, maybe maybe high. A. I don't know. Those comparisons are always janky. And then all the way down to their lowest level is you arrive and there are eight to ten people, male and female, from all ages, <laughs> very eager to learn how to play baseball. And, you know, you know, we'll you do a little drill where they're throwing the ball around the horn. Somebody misses the ball, hits them in the forehead. They don't care. They just want more of it. They just love baseball. It's just really fascinating to see how, um, you know, love of the game and just the interest in, in doing all of the things, the taking the ground balls and the fielding, everything. It's just interesting to see how that how that um, travels and lands in, in other cities. And then I got a chance to do uh, these elite academies that Major League Baseball has. Um, I did uh, one in Italy with uh, Barry Larkin and Steve Spley, two very good players who are better guys and really knowledgeable, just still, you know, not playing, but still learning quite a bit and, and getting to rub elbows with them. And so the Elite Academy is basically the 50 best prospects in any given um, region. And so it's basically on continent. So this was the 50, 50 best prospects in Europe. And hmm. so got to work with a bunch of good players. Again, the, the kids are just super eager and just super happy to work with you know, um, Steve and, and Barry and, um, um, and, you know, and, and everyone, Greg Swindell, another lovely mm-hmm. guy who's uh, really knowledgeable, has a really good feel for teaching. And then I did another one in, in South Africa. This was the 50 best prospects in Africa and possibly more rewarding because they're a little bit further away. Uh, they don't quite know the game as well. They haven't been playing it as long, but love is there. And, you know, when you're there, you realize, um, it's a lot about teaching the coaches because the coaches need to learn the game so that when, you know, they're at their academies, you know, and if you're, you've got this, you know, a baseball academy in Senegal, uh, you're only going to be as good as the knowledge that your coaches have. So the coaches are just amazing guys, really dedicated. They have other jobs, obviously, and um, they love the game as much as the kids. So that's been really fascinating. And then I've done a little bit of, you know, your baseball analyst work where you mm-hmm. wear a suit and you pretend that uh, the game is really easy. I never do that. I always try to balance that and fight against the uh, reporters and the analysts uh, who didn't play and tend to sometimes uh, <laughs> forget that the game is really hard, perhaps because they've never played it and don't know that it's really, really hard. That is always really fun and eager to do it whenever they uh, – whenever they call me. Um, uh, and, yeah, so that's basically my, you know, my work in, in baseball. Uh, yeah. What do you want to do going forward since you've had all these unique experiences? What have you enjoyed most? 
Um, you know, I, I work in media as well. Um, I've been working sort of as a, a host and a correspondent for uh, for Vice as mm-hmm. well. Uh, I work on a show called The Vice World of Sports. It's gone two seasons. Not really sure if it's going to go a third. But it's um, Vice's version of the 30 for 30. It's a sports documentary program. We, you know, investigate a story somewhere. To give you an example, the first story I did was about marching bands um, at HBCUs that the mm-hmm. black colleges created when um, during segregation. And, and then um, I went to uh, last season, I went to Algeria to do a piece about um, soccer's legitimate impact on the Algerian revolution. Uh, and then I did a baseball piece, actually, um, that involved the Princeton Rays, which was... I remember really, reading about that. Really interesting and bizarre, getting to run into old friends like uh, Skeeter Barnes and uh, and all these folks. And that was about the, you know, just the backdrop of Mercer County, West Virginia, and, um, you know, as a, as a coal town and sort of just investigating a little bit about what it's like to be there uh, as a, you know, a, a young ball player that has no idea uh, what's in store for them. So I really like that. I'm also a teacher. I teach at the school of the New York Times, which is a program for, um, for high school kids. I would tell you, if you are a high school child, uh, sign up. Um, but I think we're pretty much sold out. I teach two courses over there, uh, one um, creative writing course, culture and creative writing. And then I also teach another course called Future Sports Trends which um, I guess is what it sounds like. <laughs> That's really fun. Uh, you know, I just, this baseball thing happened, um, which is just this opportunity I couldn't really deny. And uh, as a friend said to me, you know, uh, teaching and other things will always be there. Baseball uh, only once, you know, only once you write right now and then you know there's only one time to do it so i've been lucky to do a lot of things and very much into surface area i'm not exactly sure what uh the future has in store but um more of what i'm doing hopefully if i'm lucky Ando Perez, former race player representing Tampa Bay at tomorrow's Major League Baseball draft. Now, speaking of the draft, now joining us from MLB Network and MLB.com, one Jonathan Mayo. And Jonathan, it doesn't really appear there's a consensus number one pick this year. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, And there hasn't really been, if you look at the last few years, uh, there hasn't been that guy who is the obvious slam dunk number one guy. Um, I think this year uh, is particularly that way with, uh, you know, potential of a lot of different guys you know, have been mentioned all through the spring, and not there wasn't has been one guy that has really, really separated himself to scream like I must be the number one pick. So, how good is the group then in the top five in your mind? I mean, are these impact guys, or are these guys who are going to be good major league baseball players uh, eventually? Uh, you know, I think they have a chance to be impact guys. Uh, you know, there aren't as many impact guys in this class overall i think that's the sort of weakness there's more depth than there is um i think there's more quantity than like that upper echelon quality uh but there are some guys you know at the very top who have the chance to be superstar quality players you just it's not that i mean it never is you know the draft is such a crapshoot baseball you know that you know there there isn't 
it's rare where there's like this guy that you know that you can guarantee mm-hmm. bank it, this guy's going to be a superstar. But uh, this year, I think there there are more question marks. Uh, so the, the top group, I think, are all, all have a chance to be very good, uh, if not that superstar quality. And I guess one of the other big questions out of this year's draft is what position are some of these guys going to play? This seems right. like more two-way guys than normal. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every year there are guys who are two-way guys, but it's obvious which way they're going to play at the next level. Um, and this year you've got one guy, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk specifics in a bit, but you've got one guy coming out of high school who it's clear that he's going to pitch, but he'd be a first-round pick as a, as a hitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got another guy you know, out of Louisville who could go, you know, would be a top-five pick either way. Uh, and then even a li- li- little later down, there's, you know, there's a really interesting high school guy who- who's a catcher and a pitcher, and depending on who you talk to, that's what he should be. So let's start with the guys near the top since the race yeah. to pick fourth with, with Hunter Green and, and Brennan McKay. Where do you think these guys end up? I know your colleague Jim Callis has McKay ending up with the Rays at number four. I think that's a distinct possibility. I think right now Brendan McKay and Kyle Wright, the right-hander from Vanderbilt, are, are the two front runners to go number one overall. Uh, if McKay doesn't go number one, I think there's a strong possibility he goes number four to the Rays. Um, you know, the Padres, I think, would consider him, but I don't think he's their top choice. So, you know, if the Twins take Kyle Wright, then I think the Reds take Hunter Green, uh, and then the Padres probably go for a high-end high school guy, either Mackenzie Gore or or Royce Lewis, and that means that the, the Rays uh, could take Brendan McKay, and all signs point to uh, that they would, and if they do, they would let him hit. That's as of <laughs> right now. That could change in the next 24 hours before the Rays uh, or anybody you know make, make their first selections on Monday night. Do you like uh, McKay more as a hitter or a pitcher from what you've seen? You could make a really strong argument either way. Um, I think I would let him pitch, but that's not, that's like a gut feel kind of thing. That's not like a, oh, there's no question he should be pitching. You know, it, it's not, it, it, I don't have that a strong feeling either way. I just, you know, I know there were some people that are a little concerned that the stuff backed up a little bit, but you know what? If he goes to the next level and he's pitching, he's not going to be hitting third every day. Like, you know, he hits third in Louisville's lineup. Mm-hmm. Every day, even on the days he pitches. Yeah, I know he's only a first baseman, but that you know that that takes a toll after a while. It makes sense that he'd slow down a little bit. I you know I think the stuff will pick back up to where it was at the beginning of the spring, and he's more than just a you know a, a three or four starter, which you know that was the critique. Uh, you know I think there might be even a little more in the tank once he can really focus on pitching full time. And as a hitter, how good do you think he can be there? I think he could be really good. I think he could be a middle-of-the-order guy who hits, you know, 280 to 300 and gives you 20 to 25 homers a year. I mean, he's that good. Uh, you know, and again, if you were to focus on hitting, same thing. Batting practice every day. Uh, all the extra work that you could get, which he doesn't necessarily get to do uh, when he's, you know, when, when he's pitching. So uh, I think there's more in the tank there as well. And he had a really, really good year offensively, too. So, uh you know, that's why I think you could make the argument that he's the best college pitcher 
and the best college hitter in this year's draft class. Pretty high praise. And, you know, the Rays will pick two more times in the top 40. Uh, at 31 and 40, you're probably wondering, okay, is someone going to fall to them? Are there guys right now that you think maybe had higher stock a, a month ago, a couple weeks ago, that could fall to 31 um, and may end up being a steal for them at those spots? Yeah, I think it's possible. Uh, I think invariably there's always like the one college pitcher that you like, wait, how did he get down there? But I, those guys have already kind of been discussed as possibilities. You know, the Alex Langs, who I think now will probably go higher. Tanner Houck is another one, probably go higher. Uh, Griffin Canning from UCLA, another guy who's being mentioned in the middle of the first round. Have to wait and see. Now, the, one of the problems is, you know, when a college arm falls, you start to wonder why. You know, what's the reasoning? Is there a medical issue? The things, you know, that nature. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they could pass by. Typically, you know, especially when you're looking at it before, you know, before the top of the first round starts to unfold, it's the high school arms that tend to filter down, not because there's anything wrong with them, but because there is this fear uh, of, of high school pitching up higher. And the college performers float upwards, and the high school arms float downwards. So I think there are some interesting high school guys uh, who could be around when the Rays make those picks, Sam Carlson is a big, strong right-hander from Minnesota, cold-weather state. Um, you know, he's a guy that could be around right around there. That is Jonathan Mayo of MLB Network and MLB.com. And want to thank him and all of our guests on the program today, including Director of Scouting for the Rays, Rob Metzler, of course, Dave and Andy, and Brian Anderson of Fox Sports Sun, Josh Lowe, the Rays' top pick from last year's draft, principal owner Stuart Sturdberg, and Fernando Perez, who you can see tomorrow for the draft on one MLB network. Hey, get the only bobblehead that can make the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs on Saturday, June 24th, when the Rays face the O's. Fans will get a Kevin Kiermeyer Star Wars bobblehead presented by Tech Data and get to meet some of their favorite Star Wars characters, too. Visit RaysBaseball.com today and raise up. If you ever have something you want to hear on the show, all you have to do is tweet me at Neil Solons. For my producer, Trey Downey, I'm Neil Solons, and stay tuned. Next week, Jay Cotarizzi, plus here from the Rays' next first-round pick. The pregame show's next. You're listening to the Rays Baseball Network. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.